Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 91. <clears throat> Going back to a, a bit of a continuation, uh, architecturally speaking, we're talking about plans of how Jamestown was first laid out. The, uh, the excavators at Jamestown discovered two very distinctive types of row houses. Although the two room plans of both types were quite common in England, in the middle of the 17th century. One form was rarely used in an urban context, while the other could be found in cities and towns throughout the southeast. The first type appears at two Jamestown sites. When first constructed, it comprised a series of lobby entry houses. And <clears throat> these are labeled, so structure 115 was built as four units while structure 144 began with a, an erection of a pair of units, followed shortly, if not immediately, by a second pair in the east. Each house in these two rows originally contained two principal ground floor, ground floor rooms laid out side by side. Individual units measured 40 feet across the facade and 20 feet deep. So that when connected together, the entire range of houses occupied a very broad frontage of more than 160 feet in length. The entrance to each house was located near the center or that of both of the long walls of the chimney stack placed in the middle of the house between the two rooms. The position of the doorway at the juncture of the two rooms and chimney stack in the front of the house created a small vestibule or lobby type entrance. Because the chimney was built closer to the rear wall than the front one, a winding staircase to the second floor probably rose against the stack in this lobby space. In contrast to the side-by-side -side plan of the lobby entrance rows, Jamestown speculators experimented with a second type in the three units these connected houses consisted of two rooms placed front to back. The front facade of each house measured 20 feet and probably contained an off-center doorway. The entrance may have opened directly into the front room or a small side passage that led to the back of the house. If there was a passage similar to the ones found in many of the London examples of this period. Then, the James House, ha, Jamestown houses would have been among the first to have this feature in Virginia. The party walls of the row stretched back 40 feet to incorporate a secondary room behind the front one at best. And like the lobby entrance plan, a central chimney stack separated the two rooms and a winding staircase rose against one side of the stack in the vestibule which provided a small passage between the front and the back rooms. Despite their different orientations toward the street, both house forms shared a central chimney located between the two principal rooms. The position of the chimney stack is perhaps the most revealing diagnostic feature of the plan. It marks a clearly defined period of use in both England and in the Chesapeake. In England, the central stack was commonly used in a number of rural and urban-type plan settings, 
that have emerged in the late 16th century and flourished until it went out of fashion at the beginning of the 18th century. The plan superseded the traditional cross-passage house type through most of England and eastern Wales. Its advantage over older forms was part economical. A central chimney could be inserted into a timber frame building without any great disruption to the framing system and permitted a pair of rooms to be heated by a single stack. The lobby entry plan also addressed the growing aesthetic concern for symmetrical facades by allowing a central doorway flanked by windows on either side. An arrangement difficult to achieve in the old cross passage plans. A number of Chesapeake settlers constructed houses with central stacks during the 17th century. But as in England, this form was supplemented by the preference for gable-ended chimneys by the second half of the century. It is telling, though, to note that two of the units in structure 144 and one in structure 145 were later changed, and their destruction during Bacon's Rebellion in 16. 76 to accommodate gable end chimneys. While its popularity spread across much of the English countryside, the lobby entry plan found limited use in an urban context due to constraints of space. In older cities, the premium on narrow and deep lots made such a conspicuous use of a broad frontage unusual. Surveys of the city properties of London reveal few, if any, examples of lobby entrance rows in the heart of the city. Ralph Treswell's survey of London properties at the beginning of the 17th century depicts only a handful of single lobby entry houses, usually built as infill and rarely located on street front property. The few that do appear in these surveys enclose, enclose the back of a lot or fill part of a garden. Even at the end of the 17th century, the lobby entry house was still a rare form in London, and these two were nearly all located at the back of lots. Thomas Stevenson, for example, occupied a three-room lobby entry house at the back of Mrs. Butler's garden off Swan Alley. A neighboring tenant, William Reese, lived in a similar dwelling at the back of John Burgess's garden. Stevenson's house contained a central stack warming the principal ground floor hall and parlor. Ross's house had a similar arrangement with a hall, slightly larger kitchen, and two service rooms partitioned off at the end of the kitchen. In both houses, a small winding staircase rose in front of the stack and in the lobby entry. Nearly a century after Treswell's survey, the lobby entry house has remained a rare form on the streets in the city of London. As in Treswell's day, a survey of more than 300 city properties between 1680 and 1720 suggests that few Londoners lived in such houses. Nearly all appear at the back of the lots. John Raycroft lived in a 33-foot-long lobby entry house at the back of the garden off Little Swordbearer's Alley. To reach his house, one proceeded through a passage between the tenements into a garden where the house occupied the full width of the back lot. Raycroft entered his house through a central doorway and into a small lobby where the stair rose in front of him 
to the upper stories. A door to the left opened into the kitchen, while one to the right led to the parlor. It's scarcely commonplace in the heart of London and other densely populated cities and towns for lobby entry houses and those with two rooms fronting onto the street may have been more common on the edge of new suburbia-type developments during the first half of the 17th century. W.A. Panton recorded a number of 17th century long house types in Oxford, which he found suitable for the less crowded suburban streets, such as Broad, <coughs> Broad Street and Hollywell. A 17th century lobby entry cottage on Broad Street in front of Trinity College measured 30 by 19 feet with a vestibule formed by a central stack. Unlike the London and Jamestown examples I've cited, the staircase rose beyond the stack from a larger ground floor room. A similar plan appears at 35 Hollywell, a house built in 1626. Like the Broad Street house, this structure had a staircase against the back of the stack, a position that allowed tighter access to the upper stories. So houses with two ground floors rooms that bordered on the street rather than being set at right angles to it could be found in some towns in the early 17th century. But not all of these were lobby entry type plans. Some, such as those erected for laborers and shopkeepers in King's Lynn, featured gable end chimneys. A series of smaller houses built on the west side of Tuesday Market in the 1620s contained a center passage leading to the back of the lot, flanked on one side by a shop, on the other by a parlor. Both ground floor rooms were heated by chimneys on the gable ends. Although unusual, two-room wide houses occasionally formed the plans of a few rows, but not many. One such early 17th century example survives in Ipswich. Built in 1631, on a new street laid out near the harbor inside the city center, this timber-framed row of two stories con contains three houses, two of which have a pair of rooms facing the street. While not entry-level houses, the Ipswich example reveals the willingness of some builders to erect long rows of the fringes on the outskirts of the cities. But perhaps the most conspicuous use of the lobby entry type plan, connected in a series of rows, that appears in one of the many almshouses erected across England in the late 17th and early 16th centuries. But on the edge of the towns, in parish churchyards, in isolated rural settings, and occasionally in the heart of cities, almshouses combine the economic benefits of row construction with the convenience of the lobby entry plan. Many almshouses, such as those erected at Monk and Hadley, Herefordshire, Horton, Comstedley, Oxford, and Framingham, Suffolk in 1654, and in Colchester, Essex in, 17, in 1678, have the same footprint as the Jamestown row houses, with a plan that differs from them. The English buildings were subdivided into individual units on either side of a common stack, whereas evidence from the Jamestown building suggests that both rooms sharing the common stack were part of a single house, 
English almoners occupied a single ground floor room, but shared a central doorway rather than a staircase in the common lobby. Each unit contained a smaller, winder stair generally tucked behind the chimney against the back wall. If the broad-fronted lobby entry house type was little use in English towns, the second form in the Jamestown Row House has a direct link to the urban plan, and this type is much better suited to the restrictions imposed by narrow street frontages. Houses two rooms deep, usually containing a front shop and a rear parlor or kitchen on the ground floor, were amongst the most common forms recorded in contemporary surveys of city properties. Examples with central stacks located between the front and back rooms appear by the middle of the 17th and late 16th century. A row of four central stack houses, similar in plan to those found in Structure 17 at Jamestown, were built in Gray's Inn Lane in London in 1595. All had off-center entries and two contained side passages that extended to the rear of the building. Midway, a winding staircase opened off the passage and rose against the stack to the upper floors. Treswell survey also recorded several dozens of similar plans, while later plats suggest they contain predominance of two-room plans with actually placed stacks at the end of the 17th century. William Laybourne noted this arrangement in his book, A Platform Guide Made for Purchasers, Builders, Measures, in 1668. The plan was published as late as 1703 again in subsequent editions of Moxham's Mechanic Exercises as a standard form of London-type housing. As Peter Guillory has noted, the form remained popular in developments on the periphery of London, in suburbs such as Greenwich, Woolwich, and Deptford through much of the 18th century. The dozens of plans recorded in the city lands and bridge house properties between 1680 and 1720 reveal a variety of circulation patterns and room functions. A central chimney, either built against one of the party walls or standing slightly off-center, divided the two main ground floor rooms. Although many of the properties had unheated front spaces and others had double-heated ground floor rooms, the front room was almost invariably a shop, sometimes heated and occasionally not, while the back room was used by the tenants primarily as kitchens and occasionally as parlors. Some houses had side passages that separated the front shop from the rest of the house, while others had no such type partitions. So a few of these houses had passages that ran the full depth of the house, with the stair rising off the passage into the center of the building. Other buildings had no front passages. In these, visitors and family men members entered instead directly into the shop, and from this front room they proceeded to a small vestibule beside the chimney, where the stair and passage to the back room were located. So as in Jamestown, many houses contained winding staircases leading to the upper floors that stood against a stack. A variant on this pattern was the placement of a staircase against the party wall opposite the chimney with a small vestibule and passage to the back room 
between the chimney and the staircase. So Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.